Have you ever wondered if God got a tattoo, what kind of a tattoo would he get? I bet you haven't wondered that. You know, tattoos are a lot more popular than they used to be. But have you ever wondered if God got a tattoo, what would it look like? Would it say, where would he get it? I know the answer to this, and I'll tell you later. We've got some work to do before we get there. Um, we're going to talk today about the hands of God. Talk about the hands of God. You know, hands are an interesting part of the body. On the one hand, on one hand, um, when you first meet someone, the first thing you do is extend to them a, a hand for a handshake. And when you want to congratulate someone, you give them a high five. Uh, you've probably been in times where you've sat around a table and, and held hands and prayed with the other people at a table. But I don't know if you've ever been holding hands uh, with a group of acquaintances around a table and someone went from, from prayer hands to interlocking fingers. You ever had that happen? And you just kind of want to go, I'm not married to you. What just happened here? Um, there's a lot of people I would give high fives to, but there's not a whole lot of people I would hold hands with during a movie. It's a very short list of people that I would watch a movie with while holding, holding hands. And so on the one hand, the hands are one of the most visible things that we have. They do most of our work. They are offered to strangers in order to move them from stranger to acquaintance. They're often as congratulations, but they're also an, an intimate part of our body. There's things our hands do with people that are in our family, that are our children, that are our loved ones, our parents, uh, that are different. They're very affectionate, very personal. And so when we talk about the hands of God, what we're going to be talking about is how does God give us pictures of his hands that help us understand the kind of relationship that he wants uh, to have with us, that he wants to have with his children and those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to think about someone who's special to you, someone that you've loved in your life, who when you call up the image of their hands, uh, brings you fond memories. Someone that, uh, that you loved or that loved you. And I want to ask you, what do you remember about their hands? Do you remember their strength, their gentleness, how they held your hand in tough times or good times, how they uh, gave you uh, a strengthened hug by incorporating their hands and wrapping their arms around you? Do you remember the lines on their hands or maybe the wear on their hands from years of hard and difficult work and labor? What do you remember about the hands of those you love? You know, today we're going to think about the hands of God. And, and when we talk about God, God's not enfleshed. Uh, God doesn't have uh, skin color. You cannot uh, really shake hands with God in this physical way. But over and over again, Scripture is going to use the image of God's hands to teach us very important things about who he is, what he's done, who he thinks we are, and how he wants to relate to us and love us. And we're going to look at some of these Scriptures today. Uh, I want us to start in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, uh, right at the very beginning of the Bible. And, and I want to do this because I think when we think about God, we all too often think about God the same way that we think about Star Wars, is that God is something that happened a long time ago, far, far away. 
Um, and that that's how we envision God, and it's how we envision Jesus. And yet, when we look at the, the hands of God and the number of texts that we're going to be looking at today, God is not a long time ago or far, far away. God is very personal, very present, and very close to us in ways that really change how we depend on Him and show gratitude toward Him and rely on Him in the way that we have a relationship with Him. And so we know Genesis 1 probably better than Genesis 2. Genesis 1 tells the story where God creates by speaking into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God parts the waters and the land and creates oceans and land, and and he's doing all of these incredible things. He speaks, and it exists. At the end of Genesis 1, what you know is that God is a powerful God. God is all-powerful, and he's wise, and he's orderly, and he's organized, and he's able to do all of these things by just pronouncing that they will be, and because of his pronouncement, they are. And then Genesis 2 says, okay, you zoomed out and you saw God's power. Now in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to zoom in. And we're not only going to show you that God is powerful, we're going to show you that God is close to his creation. He's not far, far away. He is in the garden. And listen to how Genesis chapter 2 describes what God is doing in the creation. This is the account, this is in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 1 zooms out and Genesis 2 zooms in. There are different stories that are telling us about the God who created the one world that we live in, and both of them contain truth, and they tell us about who God is and how he created. And they're telling us in Genesis 2, this story is telling us that God gets down in the dirt. And it's this image of God who's later in this text that we just read, he's planting the trees. I mean, in Genesis 1, it just kind of says God speaks and the trees exist, but Genesis 2 shows us God's planting. And and you get this image of God that's almost like a farmer who's going and getting in the ground and and, and taking the dirt and forming Adam out of it. He shapes him and molds him and the dirt. And you get this, I don't, I don't know how you can hear this story without picturing God's hands having dirt on them. And then as Adam is formed out of the dirt, God leans over and breathes his breath into him, the breath of God into Adam's lungs, and Adam becomes a living being. And God's not done with this forming and this shaping, this hands-on creation of Adam and now Eve. Because in in verse 20, the story picks up. 
right after Adam has named everything, it says that for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is a a weird story, and we don't understand what it's happening. We just have to trust that the knowledge of God is greater than the knowledge of man, that he's able to do this out of Adam, Adam to produce Eve. But it's not that much weirder than taking the dirt and forming out of the dirt a man. What what I want you to see and what I think Genesis 2 wants you to see is that God is not far, far away just speaking things into existence that he doesn't care about. God is here with his hands involved in the crafting and creating of his masterpiece that is man and woman. And it's beautiful. And it's incredible to see God being so hands-on with this, his great project, the pinnacle of all creation, the man And the woman. And so God creates humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Men and women created both individually and collectively in the image of God. And he's doing this with his his own hands. He's doing this because he loves us and he's present to us. And we get a picture of a God that that is getting his hands dirty like a farmer gets his hands dirty and he's planting the seeds and the trees are growing and he places Adam there and and we sing songs about how and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And that's the picture you get from Genesis 2 is this God who is in the garden with the ones that he has created out of the dirt and the ribs and he's made them into his perfect masterpiece and his hands are willing to get dirty to do it. The hands of God. But he doesn't stop there. And it's not just for Adam and Eve to be created and shaped by God. In fact, in Psalm 139, which was read earlier, it talks about how God continues to shape and mold his children, continues to make them in the way that he sees fit. So then in Psalm 139, which is a Psalm of David, It says, starting in verse 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This section of Psalms has really powerful image. It starts, or it ends, by by praising God for being the God whose thoughts are so many that they outnumber the sand on the shore. God, your thoughts are uncountable. They are insurmountable. They are unbelievable. I can't even begin to comprehend a, a fraction of what you know, God. But even though you know all of that, 
when I was in my mother's belly before I was born, you were knitting me, knitting me, and you knew me, and you saw me, and your hands knit me together, knowing me so intimately that you knew all the days that were written for me in my life. That's how well you know me, that there's no surprises in me, because you're the one who knit me. And I've got to ask, because I think this is really, this has been meaningful to me this week, as I've been thinking about God's hands. Um, how many of you enjoy knitting, do knitting on a regular basis? Yeah. I don't think it'll surprise most of you um, that not many male hands went up. Um, knitting is, is not really uh, the hobby of, of men historically. And in fact, if you go on Google and you do an image search for knitting hands, it probably wouldn't surprise you that they are the hands of women that are knitting and sewing. And this image of, of God knitting together a baby before it's even born in its mother's womb is a very maternal image. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that a God who made men and women in his image, they each receive the image of God uh, from him and it's placed in them, will be described in a way that is motherly in his love for us. That is personal, that, that as a mother knows her baby before it's born, and as a mother begins to dream about her child uh, when she feels those first, kit, first kicks, and as a mother whose body is doing the work of knitting and creating a baby together, that she does that in cooperation with God, the God who knits us together in the womb, in the secret place, in this special way that most of us can't even imagine. Is God the God who lives a long time ago and far, far away? Or is he the God who is there before we're even born with his hands knitting us together with the love and care of a parent? God had created you and knit you and knew you and loves you. But he doesn't stop shaping us once we're born. He doesn't stop having a role in our lives once we're born, that we're just, uh, now that we're out of our moms, we're on our own, maybe we turn 18, and he says, we'll just see what happens with this one. God's not like that. God continues to have a role in molding us and shaping us. And so in Jeremiah chapter 18, it, Jeremiah walks into a potter's house, and he sees this image, and this image is offered to him in a way that teaches him about who God is and what God is doing with those who are his. And so the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and that nation warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I've planned. He says, but, but I may later decide that I will relent. And he says, it's up to me to shape this piece of clay the way that I want to. And he's talking to Israel and he's speaking of nations, but what's true for groups is true for us. And he's talking about his people, Israel, and he's talking about his people, 
us. I had an opportunity uh, to, to visit the house of a master potter last spring when I was up in Minnesota. Um, and I was up there for a course, and while we were there, we spent a lot of time in the potter's house because he told great stories. He was a great storyteller. Um, and he would sit at his wheel, and he used wheels that are centuries old, and, and there's no electronics to them. You spin them with your foot, and you'd craft the clay and make cups out of them and saucers and all kinds of beautiful things. And he had several apprentices that were there, and one of them had only been there a couple of months. And you'd walk over, and you'd look at him on the wheel, and what he was making uh, was about this big around, and it was about that tall. And we'd say, what is that going to be? And he would say, Nothing. What? You're not going to make that into something? And he says, no, I'm not. Why not? I'm not good enough yet. Oh, well, what are you doing? Until I can make 100 of these things. And what he was making was actually the base that goes at the bottom of a cup. Just the base, not even the cup, that the cup would then be placed on and shaped on top of. Until I can make 100 of the bases of a cup that are identical and without a single flaw, I can't do anything else. How long is that going to take? And he says, that's not up to me. That's up to the master potter who's going to tell me when I've done it. At the end of the day, he would take the clay and he would shape it and put it back with the other clay that he could keep learning from the next day. And God is the greatest potter that we've ever known, that the world has ever known. He's the one that shaped Adam out of the dirt and Eve out of a rib. He's the God who says, Israel, how can I take you and shape you and remake you? And, and, and when it's tough, I'll start over. And if it gets hard again, I'll start over. And if you mess up, I'll start over because I'm not ever going to be done shaping you into the masterpiece that I began in Eden, that I started in you in your mother's womb, and that I continue to do every day as I seek to make you into what I need you and want you and am calling you to be. The potter's house in the potter's hands. But it's not just about creating and shaping. God's hands do other things for us as well. It's not just about the making us into something. God's hands are supportive. God's hands are protective. God's hands are caring and providing in their own ways. And so when you think about, we're going to look at a couple of texts here in a second from the book of Isaiah. And the thing that you need to know about the book of Isaiah is it's written by a prophet of that name, Isaiah, who was writing to Israel when they were in exile in Babylon. So Israel used to be in Israel, and then Babylon came in and defeated them and took off all of them and hauled them off to live somewhere else because they found that if people weren't in their home, they lost their will to fight. And so they're in this demoralizing practice of the Babylonians to, give, to make them feel like strangers and aliens because strangers and aliens don't fight for the land that they live in. They fight for the land they used to be in. And so this is the practice of Babylon, and it's a cruel practice. And Israel has lots of questions once they arrive in Babylon. Questions like, how do we make sense about God's promises to us if we're in Babylon and not in Jerusalem? How do we make sense of that? And one of the possibilities that they talked about is maybe God just lied. Maybe God promised that he would take care of us and we would be his people and that he would be faithful to us and he just broke his promise. Maybe God uh, wasn't strong enough Maybe the gods of Babylon are stronger than the gods uh, of Israel, the God of Israel, the God of Zion, Yahweh. Maybe that's the reason that we're here and not home. And the other possibility is maybe God just doesn't love us as much as we thought he did. Maybe he just doesn't care. 
And so Isaiah and the other prophets come into Israel at a time that they're asking these questions, and they have to answer them. And the answer that they give over and over and over again is, it's not that God's not faithful, it's that you weren't faithful, and so you're here to bring you back into God's faithfulness because he's waiting for you. It's not that Babylon's gods are stronger than Yahweh. It's that Yahweh sent you here. He's the only strong one that can do this. He sent you, and he'll call you back when you're ready. And it's not that God doesn't love you. He's doing this because you quit loving him, and he's trying to win you back. And that's the message of the prophets over and over again. And Isaiah uses beautiful language at times to call Israel back into the relationship that God wants them to be in. And one of those that calls on the idea and the image of the hands of God is in Isaiah 46, verses 3 through 4, which says this, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and carried you since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Isaiah says, Israel, don't you know that God is the one who carried you from your birth? What a picture. What a picture. That God says to us, don't you know that I love you so much, but God, it doesn't seem like you're always there. I'm there when you see me and when you don't, when things are easy and they're good and when they're bad and when they're hard, I'm there and I'm holding you like a parent who's had you wrapped in, in my very arms from the moment you were born, I've carried you. And certainly when Isaiah said it, he would have lived in a world where that too would have been a very maternal image, an image of a mother's love and care and provision for her baby who depends on her for food and protection and teaching and every little thing that leads to them becoming independent. But in the world that we live in today, that's not just a maternal image. That's one of just parents, parents who love their kids and hold their kids and and wrap them in blankets and tell them, I love you and I have dreams for you. And as the child becomes independent, God says, listen, once you're on your own and you're big enough to go without me, I still didn't give up on you. The hands of God continue to sustain and provide and care for his people throughout their life and throughout all that comes their way. In verse 49, we get another glimpse at the hands of God. In verse 49 and verse 14, but Zion said, and Zion is, it means Israel, But Israel said, after God has promised that he has remained faithful even though it looks like he hasn't, that he's strong enough even though it looks like he isn't, and that he loves them even though they're doubting whether he does. He tells them all this, and then Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And it's a cry that we could hear in the world today. We live in a world where people are filled with so much suffering and doubt and hurt and betrayal and the lies of secularism that tells us that God doesn't exist and won't show up. That it's easy for us to repeat these words in our private prayers and in our conversations with others and to hear the echoes of them in the world that we live in when the world says the Lord has forsaken us and the Lord has forgotten us. Listen to God's response. Listen to this. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born. 
though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God says, I haven't forgotten you. It's more likely that a mother will forget the baby that she's holding at her chest, that that she's feeding and providing and loving. It's more likely that that mother will forget her baby than I will ever forget you. I cannot stop loving you. I cannot stop remembering you. I cannot stop providing for you. I cannot stop sustaining you. There is no way I can forget you. There are mothers who will forget their children first before I forget you. And then you lean in and you look at these hands that God uses to knit us together and perform us out of the dirt and the hands that provide for us and shape us like the potter, the hands that take care of us when we're babies and when we're grown and when we're gray and when we're old, these hands that take care of us. And you look in and there's something engraved on them. Prophet Isaiah says, when you look at God's hands, what's engraved on those palms is you. It's you. On God's hand is your name. On God's hand is the names of those he loves the most and cares for the most and will never let go of and never forget. And it's your name. And it's my name. And it's the names of everyone who has taken God as father, who has taken God as the one who provides for them. God loves us so much that he engraves your name on his hand. God's not in flesh, but if he was, he'd have a tattoo. And that tattoo is your name on his palm because his love for you is that eternal. And it's that limitless. And it's that forever. And Jesus knows it too. So in John chapter 10, when Jesus is talking to the apostles, he says this, he says, listen, I, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe the works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you did not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. What a picture. Jesus says, are you one of my sheep? God gave me sheep, and if you're one of my sheep, you know my voice. And if you know my voice, you're in my hand. And if you're in my hand, you're in God's hand. And if you're in God's hand, here's what you need to hear today. Nothing, nothing, nothing can snatch you from the hand of God. What about my mistakes? Nothing. What about all the evil in the world? Nothing. What about the things I'm afraid of? Nothing can snatch you from the hand of God. They hold, God's hands will hold you forever and he will never let you go, never let you down, never drop you, never forget you. God's hands will hold you the way that they have from the very, very beginning. So what do the hands of God look like? 
The hands of God look like a farmer's hands, dirty with his work of creating the ones he loves the most. They look like a knitting grandmother, carefully weaving her labor of love for the ones that she's so passionate about. They look like the hands of the master potter, shaping and molding the masterpiece of your life for his glory. The hands of God look like a parent who carries their child, protecting them from all the dangers of the world while dreaming about what this child will be and who they will become and what they will do. The hands of God, the hands of God have your name written on them. And the hands of God invite you, invite you to be one of Jesus' sheep. Because if you accept that invitation to be one of Jesus' sheep, your name's on the hands. The hands take care of you, and nothing can ever, ever snatch you from the hands of God. And if you need to respond to that gospel and the welcoming, loving, providing hands of Jesus Christ, which are the hands of God, please do so this morning as we stand and sing. Oh, do you-